there's these little coals and they're cherry red and they have a little white forming on the outside where the ash is. And these are what's left of our languages, these little glowing embers. And what I've been trying to do for 40 years is push those little coals into a pile and then throw little shavings on there and then get that to flame and build a fire. And that's kind of how I visualize where our languages are today. That's how fragile they are. And what's so gut-wrenchingly sad is when something kicks that apart and you just go, okay, so, okay, so, you know, you could just, okay, we'll roll three back together. <laughs> And, you know, and try to keep it going, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and what makes me do that is beyond my understanding of myself. It's something to do with your innate identity, your innate connection to a greater sum in the universe. Welcome to Language Keepers, Emergence Magazine's six-part journey into the struggle for indigenous language survival in California. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. This podcast series is a continuation of Language Keepers, Emergence Magazine's award-winning multimedia story, where we explore the current state of four different indigenous California languages and how dedicated families and communities are facing the challenges of revitalizing some of the most vulnerable languages in the world. In 2019, our filmmaking team, led by director Adam Lofton, crisscrossed California, witnessing the language revitalization efforts of Tolawadene, Kuruk, Wukchumni, and Kawaiasu communities. This critical work is more important than ever as the dwindling number of last remaining fluent speakers document and impart their cultural and traditional knowledge to the next generation of language keepers. There is no country immune from the impact of language loss. It is estimated that 40% of the world's 7,000 languages are currently endangered. Thousands of these languages evolved over the course of human history. Yet from this linguistic diversity, more than half of the world's population now speaks only 23 languages. In Italy today, there are approximately 34 different native languages and related dialects. These languages predate what is known as Italian. 
tanti calabresi anche di altre parti, altre parti dell'Italia. In India, there are at least 780 languages. And in Papua New Guinea, which is only slightly larger than California, with less than a third of its population, 841 languages are spoken, making it the most linguistically diverse place on the planet. You got one block less, got one piccinini, it's a stop on the mama According to UNESCO, every two weeks, a language is lost with the passing of its last speaker. And between 1950 and 2010, 230 languages have disappeared. While linguistic imperialism was once delivered by swords and rifles, it is now delivered through a smartphone. Active participation in local and national governmental systems, economies, and cultures is very often only possible through the medium of one of the world's dominant languages, a fact which has placed increasing pressure on speakers of endangered languages to pursue a dominant tongue in order to support themselves and their families. At the current rate of language loss, it is predicted that up to 90% of the world's existing languages will disappear in the next 100 years. But despite these odds, communities around the world are challenging predictions of extinction and are seeking new ways of weaving endangered languages into today's globalized reality. <laughs> Following colonization by the British in the 1800s, the Maori people of Aotearoa, New Zealand, witnessed a steady decline in the number of speakers of their native language, Te Reo Maori, with less than a quarter of the Maori people maintaining fluency by the 1980s. Faced with the prospect of losing their language entirely, they launched a major revitalization effort. The first bilingual school opened in 1978, the language was heard in radio and television programs by the early 1980s. And in 1987, it was recognized as an official language of New Zealand. Today, the government of New Zealand is working to ensure that 20% of New Zealanders, both the Maori and those who are non-native, will speak Te Reo by the year 2040. The Maori revitalization, in turn, galvanized the Hawaiians. By the mid-1980s, there were only 32 members of the youngest generation of native Hawaiians who still knew the original language of these islands. But with the institution of language immersion programs in schools, which have gained momentum over the last 30 years, more than 2,500 students are now enrolled annually in Hawaiian language programs. With thousands of languages around the world facing extinction, hundreds of which are in the United States, indigenous communities are learning from the successes of the Maori and the Hawaiians. Revitalization has proved to be as dynamic as the communities who undertake it. Fluency, intergenerational learning, and engagement with a deeper understanding of cultural context and traditions are just some of the aspects of language revival. In California, the efforts of the Talawa Daini, Karak, Wakchumni, 
and Kawaiasu are following in the footsteps of the successes of the Maori and the Hawaiians. Their stories offer an example of what's possible when families and communities dedicate their lives to speaking their language and honoring their culture. light in the dark. There's always been those that try and stop you from what you're doing. And when you walk in a spiritual way, they tell you, the brighter your light shines, the harder that dark side's gonna try and put it out. So sometimes when you got all these things working against you, you have to have faith in what you know and what the Spirit tells you. Because in the end, it's gonna be for a good purpose. So we can't do everything exactly the way it used to be, but we can do it the best of our knowledge and the best of our ability we have now and make it count. You know, this is four generations that it's taken for us to get to this point. Knowing that the effort that you're putting forth and the path that you're on is something that was started way before you came into this world, I think is really powerful. And there does need to be a lot of work done around the traumatic experiences that have happened in these places. But not just work around acknowledging the trauma that's happened and feeling that hurt and that anger, but work on moving forward. Yes, there was a village place here and there was a massacre here and there's a lot of sadness in this place. And how do we change that to help those spirits move on and help ourselves move on in that experience? When you're taught a song, you recognize where that song comes from. And um, you always tell that story if you're going to teach that song. You know, this is who I learned this from, and this is where it came from, or this is how this song came to be. That's that responsibility of learning that song. And when you teach it to somebody, you know, they learn that too. So is documenting a language enough to encompass and encapsulate all its information? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's a hell no. <laughs> Not even close. If you talk to any linguist who works on documentation, any dictionary is not the same resource as a speaker. You can use all the AI databases and store it on all the drives you want it is not nearly enough. That interaction that you know people have, the process of learning language, the process of learning information, you know, that's that's more important than actually the end goal. There's so much you learn in that. You know, how you learned it, you know, how the person who was teaching you obtained it. So that at the end of it, when you know it, you know how to carry it.
Okay. Uh, <laughs> Baby! <laughs> okay. What way, ma? What way, mama, and why I had you? Look at the inches, my work get done. Mammy, mine. Cut out this. What way, ma? So I know you guys haven't been out here to gather with me before on these. So these are the sourberry sticks, and you know the name in the language? Tagatian widget. Tagatian widget, hoey. And what are what do we usually make with these? These are used for the backing on the cradle board. It is the time right now to go out and gather our basket materials. You gonna learn how to clean up destiny? Takes 26 sticks to dart the cradle board. So exciting to have my grandchildren with me, you know, because it is a family time too. Good when I can bend over. I feel it's important that uh, we keep connected to our language, and that shows how proud you are of being native by just learning your hello, you know, you're not ashamed to say hidat in your language, you know, it makes you feel proud. I am Wukchumni. <laughs> so, thread is what? Elu. Elu, and then scissors? Mayawish. Ouch, mayawish. Grandma's whole house smells like this. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of people don't get that chance to have grandma and mom, uncle, and great-great-grandma, four generations all out there together. He's gonna remember this when he's older. Ah, liver. Look at Grandma's got. Widget. Big widget. My goal is for my great-grandson. You know, he, he's the one that's gonna keep me going because I want to teach him everything I can. He'll be speaking, huh? Yes, he will. He'll be telling us <laughs> left and right. <laughs> oh, he loves your chair, Mother. You really need to use the language to know who you are because it's, it connects us to all of our family, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Whether you like them or not. <laughs> it's just something that uh, that's in your heart that you want to keep going. I mean, that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, the dictionary has brought us together, and uh, I hope that uh, the people use it and uh, learn it so they can uh, speak with one another in the language. And that's, that's my hope for the dictionary. You know, I'm glad that my wife decided that this is what I had to do. Because I was also jaded and also cynical. That there was a political side to you know, all of this that I just, just turned me off and I wouldn't have anything to do with it. And she finally said, that's it, you have to do it. You know, you, you're the one who knows this stuff, you know, and you're 
mad at them because they don't know, and it's like, but you, you know. So then maybe it's time for you to begin teaching. And then one day, I got a phone call from some stranger that said, hello, I heard that you do language, and I was wondering if you had any language classes. He wanted to be able to surprise his grandfather, who raised him, uh, when he went to heaven, because he said, well, I don't think he ever thought I could ever learn anything, he said. When I get in heaven, I want to surprise him. He had some echoes of words and things in his head that he just was hoping to be able to translate. And they were pretty much in gibberish, but one thing that I did hear that he said, that, oh yeah, I think I know what he was saying. If which means I'm, I haven't seen you for a long time. He said, yeah, I think that, that might be it. And so he learned that. Uh, once it started, yeah, it was, there was no kind of turning back. I had to go, go with it, you know. I really think language can heal. I think it can heal more than just the person speaking. I think it can heal everything by somebody learning the language, the indigenous language of the land that they're on, whether you come from there or not. Simply by learning that language, you learn a little bit more about what's around there, about where that language comes from. But, but also what I would most appreciate seeing is that people, in my lifetime, I can see that people would understand that they can choose to pursue their language pursue their cultural identity and, and make that effort. Having them understand that they have the choice to do that. And the reality is part of that reason is because I've seen people in my life that did not feel like it was a choice they could make. For safety of their survival, for safety of their children and grandchildren, that that was not a choice that they could make if they wanted people to survive. That really existed, and I've seen it in the eyes of my ancestors, you know, my grandparents, and, and even my aunties and uncles. So, so having that look gone, that's what I'd love to see. The best moment I had with for language was that um, I was walking with my mom, and she bent down, and she had saw this pretty tie the pretty the little purple Indian potato flower. She said, "Ooh, look at this flower, Khurish. And Khurish said, "Flower." And she's like, "He's like, oh, itriha." And she's like, "Yeah, itriha." He he didn't know what flower was, but he knew what itriha was. So I was like, "Yes, <laughs> something he didn't know in English." One thing that happened with my son is that he was fluent in Kaduk and only spoke Kaduk. And then he does, he really started speaking English a lot when he went to school. For my kids' generation, I would like to see a plan where our kids can make a living speaking our language. I would like to see those things valued in greater society enough for it to be considered.
good good job. <laughs> That's worth having. From a Native American woman's standpoint, language has really helped me to heal myself. It's made me feel like a wholer person. Having my kids made me feel like it's something that I really need to do for myself. And um, the language is not just for me, but it's like a it's like my gift to them. And um, it's it's something I want to give to my grandkids too. Be able to frame our world in my language, I think is a really valuable lesson for my children because I'd, I would not want that worldview to go away because I think the world needs that worldview to help. I did a talk to a bunch of young people several weeks ago and, and that's what I talked about was this idea of path. I said paths, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, were totally different. They were alive. They, they took you, and they could protect you, or they could harm you. That was the belief. These paths were alive, and so you respected them. I said, if you have to go to the bathroom, you always leave the path. You respect the path. You never defile. You don't do crappy things on the path. You always take care of it, and it'll take care of you. But I really feel like, uh, you know, our future is, is better with language. That's our path, our path. And along the way, there's an old idiot saying, may you find an elkhorn purse on the path when you're on your way home. It was said, when a young person helps an elder by getting wood or bringing them fish or whatever. To me, a age. So if you're good, may you be blessed. May you find a Elkhorn purse full of money on the way home tonight. De chines tagat sat, mashamni tagat sat, 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 de chines tagat sat. In my heart, I know that if all traditional people would bring back their traditional teachings, because those are teachings from the Creator when, we, when life started. Everyone has their own teachings for their place, where they're from. And we do bring those back, and we say the prayers, we sing the songs, we do whatever dances or whatever is from their place. The world will become stronger and it'll make it, try and keep it in balance a little bit better. The traditional teachings, the languages, customs, all of this, their laws, we follow those laws, we practice those ways, makes the world a better place. 
And you either choose to pick those up and carry them or walk away and be part of the problem. It hasn't been easy, but we've always chose to pick those up and carry them forward. And sometimes I wonder what have we done to our kids and our grandkids, because we've given them so much responsibility. seems weird that I am the last one. And uh, it'll just be gone when he says, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. They understand, you know, what she's trying to keep in their heads. You know, they're proud of being Native and they want to do as much as they can with us and for us. <laughs> And to me, that's important about being family. As an elder, as a fluent speaker, as somebody that is very proud of her nation and her people, I want to see my people coming behind me doing the exact thing I'm doing today. Them sitting in this hot seat and sharing what we taught them as elders. You know, the indigenous people of these lands have lived on these lands for thousands and thousands of years. And that relationship from observation, that relationship from listening and respect and nurturing and finding an equilibrium to live in that land, it can't be reproduced in a year. It can't be reproduced in 50 years, 100 years, you know, in this world in which we have all this technology and find all this stuff out quickly. That can't reproduce that experience that's been had by a community of people in that environment. So it's, it's tragic. You know, I, I would love to be like a fluent speaker, and fluency has a lot of different terms and stigmas that go along with it, but I'm gonna be a lifelong learner, and I want my children to use the language. I, I want them just to be who they are, and that to be part of who they are. And I don't want them to have to think that they have to work at it. I want them just to use it. When it's all said and done, I'm gonna continue to say Nganishran when I see my kids because they know what that means. They know that in our language, that means I love you. That means all those hugs and kisses and talks and, and support that they get from us, you know, that's what that means. And, you know, one day when we have grandchildren, you know, we're going to speak the language to them and, you know, we'll just continue to work with what we got. And hopefully what we got is more than what we have now. You know, so what happens if our light goes out? What happens if our connection to dream time to now goes out? There's going to be a loss there to everything in the world, and not just us, but everything as well.
What I want them to have is an organic experience with a language. It's just happening, it's a part of life. But I also want them to be made aware of that it's fragile, that it's not just, you know, hanging on the vine over there and you just go pick the whole hanging fruit. It's not that either. It's gonna require some work, you know? But I also want them to know that if they choose not to pick the higher fruit in life, well, so be it. And my auntie used to always use that word, so be it, you know? You know, I'm not old yet, but at this age, it's gonna be what it's gonna be. And with the dreams of my aunties and my mom's dad's generation was, we want our children to understand that they have a beautiful language. It's not a caveman's language. They don't go, um, uh, igwa, ooh, uh, uh, like the Westerns used to make us. You know, that it's actually one of the most challenging, you know, languages grammatically on the planet. So I carry that too. I carry those wishes that they put in my heart. You know, even like our unconscious, we are constantly looking for companionship and like-minded people in the world. And we'll find that wherever we can. And by knowing their language and by knowing their culture, the, my children and myself are better able to stand firmly in what we believe as we enter all of these other situations. And knowing who we are only strengthens our bond to other people and to other communities. I think by working on Daini and making sure that it doesn't fall asleep offers to the greater world the diversity that I think we all desperately crave and need. It's the human beings that are disconnected, you know, and then they're disconnected from each other, they're disconnected from their language, they're disconnected from their, their understanding of the world, their purpose for living. You know, they, they have never heard that your job is to fix the world. That's what kind of people are here for, is every year you have to make the world over again. Native languages heal native communities when, when they're restored, when they're revitalized. Native communities heal. You know, if there's 200 people in the tribe, you know, they will all heal. Or if there's 5,000 people in the tribe, they will all heal. there's a new word that I just learned. I had never heard it before. I was going through some old material linguist texts, and it's Papishana Yuhacha. And the phrase is, Chimiru Papishana Yuhachi. Say that. Chimmi Papishana Yuhachi. And that means, let's play tag. And I just thought, what a good word. Karo im kung karo, 
So if all of you guys learn your languages, then the world's going to be a better place. Language Keepers is produced in partnership with Advocates for Indigenous California Language Survival. You can experience video introductions and accompanied biographies of the voices you hear at languagekeepers.us. Acknowledging the original Indigenous inhabitants of the land you live on is a key step towards healing the legacy of colonization. You can do this by visiting native-land.ca or downloading the Native Land app developed by Native Land Digital. This episode is directed, produced, and edited by Adam Lofton. It's produced and narrated by Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Original music by Matthew Atticus Berger and H. Scott Salinas. Narration is written by Adam Lofton, Chelsea Steinauer Scudder, and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Sound mix and design is by D. Chris Smith. Talawadani music recording by Jamie and Milt Lee. Sound recording is by Ben Solitiano, with additional production support from Devin Talaton. Language Keepers would not have been possible without the collaboration and support of the Talawadani, Karuk, Wukchumni, and Kawaiasu communities featured in this podcast. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalyapea Foundation. Our original essays, films, in-depth interviews, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org. <laughs>